Welcome to episode 201 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And our interview today is with Susan Landau, who's a Tufts University professor and the author of a new book called Listening in Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Uh, it's a, uh, I'd say, a, a very helpful compilation of the conventional Silicon Valley wisdom on uh, the FBI's uh, push for uh, exceptional access to uh, uh, encrypted uh, uh, data. So uh, since I don't share that view, this should be an entertaining interview. Uh, But first, the news roundup. Uh, Brian Egan is here. He's a Steptoe partner in our international practice, formerly uh, legal advisor to both the State Department and the National Security Council. Uh, uh, Brian, good to have you. Thanks for having me. And Nick Weaver, uh, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer in the Computer Science Department uh, at UC Berkeley. I am Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, We... uh, we cannot avoid, I think, talking about the Nunes uh, memo. Uh, we haven't yet seen the Democratic uh, um, uh, half of the Intelligence Committee's uh, response, uh, but uh, we've certainly had a weekend of mastication. Uh, uh, and so let me ask uh, Brian and Nick, uh, where are we on this uh, memo alleging uh, um uh, improprieties in the Russia investigation uh, that uh, um, has led to the Mueller uh, uh, special counsel uh, probe. Sure, I I, I was uh, a little bit underwhelmed by the uh, the initial memo, and I think we're looking at a lot of kind of he said she said on the factual uh, underpinnings of the actual FISA application. I mean, they're thinking about what is interesting about what's been put out there so far and putting aside whether or not it's true. uh, One of the facts, of course, is did the FBI and Justice Department fail to disclose the uh, the source of the Steele dossier and that was funded by the the Democrats? That's the most troubling suggestion, along with the indication that without this dossier, which was clearly partisan and paid for mm-hmm. and a hit job, uh, uh, that without it, a, uh, uh, a FISA order probably wouldn't have been sought or obtained. Uh, uh, and they Except the investigation started with Papadopoulos before the Steele dossier was even in the hands, and that's included in the Nunes memo. Yeah, that's uh, certainly true. I, uh, I, what that, you know... At that stage, I think it's fair to describe it, uh, or it could could easily have been described as an investigation of Russia and their efforts to affect the campaign. Uh, it's only with the uh, 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 focus on uh, Carter Page that uh, it becomes a focus on uh, people associated with the Trump campaign, or at least that that that's a plausible uh, interpretation of events. But I agree with you. There was a counterintelligence investigation of what the Russians were doing that uh, came out of uh, Papadopoulos's um, 
efforts to drink an Australian diplomat under the table. Never a good idea. <laughs> I, I mean, one of the most interesting things about this to me, and this is, goes to the FISA more broadly, is let's just say, Stuart, that it is absolutely true the FBI deep-sixed any of the connections between the dossier and the political underpinnings, and they, they failed to put that in. I'm not sure it's actually true that the FISC would have not approved the application had they been fully apprised of its sources. And that kind of goes to a broader question about the FISC process. Uh, What are they looking at? What would it take to overcome the probable cause that would otherwise be required in the process? Um, But that's that's a broader question. Yeah, you know, I... I, And don't forget the bonus. This uh, didn't actually even take place until uh, after Carter Page had left the campaign. Yes, although I'm sure they were working on the FISA application before he had left. I think that's pretty likely because these things do not happen in in, uh, three weeks. Um, So I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, uh, But I, 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 I do agree that, you know, we don't know for sure what the FISA court will do with this, uh, would have done with this. Uh, the FISA court does know, and the FISA court will decide how seriously it takes this. So my guess is that they will take it very seriously, will want to know what did you know that you didn't tell me. Uh, and it isn't clear what um, was actually known uh, and what was left out. So there's a lot that is still uncertain. We will undoubtedly hear more about that when the Democrats file their 10-page version. Um, And it is pretty clear from what's been leaked so far that what we have here is while these are statements of fact, not accusations, um, the statements of fact are clearly designed to achieve a particular effect and they may have been cherry-picked to have that effect. And so until we see what the countervailing facts are that the Democrats come up with, we won't know how seriously to take this. But I will say this is the thing that bothers me most about this is uh, I don't think it has anything to do particularly with Mueller, but uh, um, it is astonishing that uh, steel and fusion GPS basically carried out what was a paid-for partisan hit job using large chunks of our national security infrastructure. Uh, I mean, they they lobbied these guys to achieve this effect, and it was to achieve this effect because of the impact it would have, it was thought to have, on the campaign, not the impact that it turned out to have, but that it would be bad for Trump for him and his campaign to be under investigation and um, from leaking classified information or leaking the uh, the dossier to um, sending in the wife of somebody in the DAG's office, uh, um, this is, was a very sophisticated effort to take what uh, Tim Comey called unverified and salacious uh, material and turn it into something that uh, would result in investigations and uh, result in the media taking it very seriously. Uh, uh, And I'm just astonished that people don't think that that's a scandal. Well, I would say that this is also evidence of the the system and not a 
political system, but the national security system kind of working. Notwithstanding all the money and all the influence that this campaign had, you basically have what is what looks like a pretty routine FISA Title I application that may or may not have been handled appropriately, but didn't it, it did not become the explosion I, that I, was I, paid I, for. I, 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 I'm not going to say that I think that somebody did something wrong. It's mm-hmm. possible that there was some mm-hmm. Trump derangement uh, in the Justice mm-hmm. Department, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, um, the fact is that. Uh, I mean, the dossier was leaked mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. carried widely. Uh, the fact of the investigation was treated as a confirmation that there was a uh, uh, Russian influence and willing Russian mm-hmm. collusion on the part of the Trump campaign. Um, it, those were really damaging. They may not turn out mm-hmm. to be true, but you know, if you can have an effect uh, that lasts for a year and a half in the body mm-hmm. politic, that's a big impact. Uh, and yeah. if it had changed the election, uh, you know, Glenn Simpson would have been putting in for a 300% uh, success fee. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that, that really does bother me. He really knew how to make this system mm-hmm. work. And uh, uh, I do think if, mm-hmm. he'd, if he'd been working for the Koch brothers, uh, uh, <laughs> that uh, there'd be a lot more outrage in uh, mainstream media. I guess, and I don't want to belabor this. I, I mean, I don't like the idea of influence uh, in these things either, but this is not the only fact that showed that Russia was trying to influence our election. Oh, this absolutely. was not something that was made up out of nothing. Yeah, I... I, 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 I I completely agree. Time that Carter Page has been under FISA-ordered surveillance, and uh, given that in 2013 he formally claimed to be an advisor to the Kremlin, um, and I'd like to note that the most interesting thing, from my point of view, is this has already shown up in the uh, the uh, public information records uh, lawsuit concerning Trump's claim of wiretapping as a counter to the Glomar that has been done of, no, we can neither confirm nor deny wiretap orders, blah, blah, blah. So now the people who are claiming that, they're, uh, that they want to see those records can say, well, you've already confirmed it because uh, uh, the, the HIPSI has, um, uh, Republican uh, uh, chairman has confirmed it. Yep. Yeah, interesting. Speaking of in... Um, confirmed espionage, uh, the Africa Union got its entire headquarters built by the Chinese government, a uh, $200 million gift to the African uh, uh, leaders, uh, uh, and now it turns out that practically everything in the building from the uh, electrical system to the uh, uh, IT system to the desks has been bugged to a fairly well, and and ripping it out is going to be a real pain in the neck. And, of course, uh, uh, the response on the Chinese side is, uh, oh, this is just some Western uh, hobgoblin. And actually, interestingly, on the uh, uh, African Union side is to say, well, we don't have anything to hide from our friends, the Chinese, so uh, uh, we're not particularly worried and we're not sure this is true. Uh, But meanwhile, they're apparently... Explosives we're setting as we're preparing to implode. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, 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 you know, when the Chinese decide they want to do espionage, this is sort of the 
style, right? The, it, it is overwhelming. It is not subtle. It is, um, you know, redundant. Uh, um, uh, you know you've been pwned when you've been pwned by the PLA. <laughs> okay. Um, l- back to law. Um, Twitter uh, has won in the Ninth Circuit. They are not responsible uh, for providing material assistance to ISIS, uh, at least in this case. That seems to be the it, – it, 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 it's gone from did they provide material assistance to did they provide material assistance that hurt the particular mm-hmm. plaintiffs. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is a case uh, that was brought under the Anti-Terrorism Act, uh, which has uh, the languages, uh, were the plaintiffs injured by reason of the acts uh, that the defendants uh, uh, undertook? And uh, Twitter argued by reason of means pretty direct connection between what Twitter did and what happened to the plaintiffs or their families. The plaintiffs were arguing for something that more resembles proximate causation, which we all know more resembles a kind of a mush of reasonable foreseeability and where are you in the chain of causation. The Ninth Circuit said, no, we think under this law, given how it was written, you need something more direct than what you might look for under the proximate cause. So you can bring a a, a cause of action for harm suffered by reason of material assistance provided? That, that's correct, okay. yes, yes. And this is something that, uh, you know, obviously a number of social media companies are following and are beginning to get dragged into lawsuits on, but it's also financial institutions, other big companies that handle large amounts of data involving large amounts of people where you might handle something that somebody alleges belongs to a terrorist group. Sure. This is actually a very big deal because it's really hard. Material assistance could be, I, you know, it, it, the, the gorilla walked into my hut and demanded a bottle of water, and I gave it to him. But uh, that's material assistance. So, so is letting people propagandize on your uh, platform. Um, so material assistance, even in a well-run social media platform, is, is going to happen. But if it has to be tied to a particular terrorist mm-hmm. event or a particular harm to civilians, mm-hmm. uh, that's almost vanishingly rare, I would have thought. And I think it's still unclear exactly what the Ninth Circuit and others are going to say this by reason of means. I think that what they've said is it's not enough just to say there were ISIS accounts on Twitter and those accounts could be used for operational and fundraising purposes. Right. Okay. Um this is both fun and deeply troubling. Uh, malvertising is just, it gets worse and worse every time I look at it. Uh, and now the crooks are creating their own ad agencies to serve up their ads, to validate the ads, uh, and to take people to sites that will take advantage of the fact that uh, um, it's almost impossible to run JavaScript without uh, taking big risks with your security. Um, And uh, uh, they got into something like a billion page views. Is that that right, Nick? Yeah, some outrageous number, but it's a really clever scheme. So... The idea is instead of just being a skeevy advertiser, you build up a reputation for being a good advertising agency so you can get directly syndicated rather than having to go through multiple layers of auction. And so this was apparently the gang that was affecting major sites like the Daily Beast and stuff like that. And it really comes down to 
at this point, ad blocking is not blocking annoyances. Ad blocking is a security necessity. Anybody running a corporate network should deploy corporate ad blocking on a system-wide basis. Yeah, uh, and of course, then you get all these whiny, whiny uh, um, uh, statements from the uh, uh, the media platform. Uh, oh, please let us in! Please let us in! We're so good. Um, a, and you know, some of them you know, you, you do feel bad about. Uh, um, and in some cases, you can't get any content if you aren't going to let them run their ads, right? Yeah, but the problem is, is it's just plain, flat, unsafe to run ads these days. So who's who Who besides the hackers who built up this, uh, uh, this set of um, fa- false front ad agencies, who, who actually could stop this um, without forcing us all to resort to uh, the ad blockers that we keep having to whitelist away? Um, the advertising giants Google in particular and others basically need to stop allowing advertisers to use JavaScript. That advertisements should be static content only, nothing Turing complete. Well, well, I would, I would, I, I would love that as a user, but uh, uh, the, the ad agencies would hate it. They wouldn't be able to run uh, um, emotion. They wouldn't be able to have sound. Uh, uh, we'd be back in the uh, little display ad uh, uh, world, which they didn't much like. Yeah, but it's the alternative is ad blocking becomes recognized as standard corporate security policy. Yeah, I, I I I can't disagree with that. Except that I think that that means that uh, no one will be able to uh, use the internet while uh, while at work, uh, which is not the end of the world, but it's not great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like it's a bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and and and. Looking at uh, the ways in which money is distorting the net, I I couldn't help notice this endless but endlessly entertaining uh, uh, New York Times article about fake Twitter followers, which are really cheap. You know, you can you can apparently get uh, three quarters of a million for uh, you know a few thousand bucks um, and and become a major maher in the uh, in the Twitter world. This is a problem that Twitter has had for years and just don't care to address. There was a paper years ago that included Twitter people on the ecology of purchasing Twitter followers, and there's really no incentive for Twitter to get rid of the problem. It's, isn't it a disincentive? I mean, they, they get to tell people your ads were, were viewed by all of these uh, uh, Twitter followers. Uh, uh, look at all the people who are en- engaged, how much engagement we have. Those are all things that uh, having a bunch of fake followers actually probably uh, uh, makes them look better on. Or just the line item number to Wall Street of, so how many um, customers do you have? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't see, apart from being misled or uh, having uh, um, uh, getting the wrong signals from uh, uh, the uh, – 
the number of people who've retweeted a particular uh, item. Uh, there's no particular harm to users of Twitter uh, from this, is there? Uh, there is because the Twitter bots overall are not just used for fake followers, but to distort the feed. So Twitter is, in many ways, the feed is shaped by popularity. So if you have a bunch of Twitter bots, it's a great way to get some hashtag release the Kraken uh, trending. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I guess I am a bad social media user. I, I use Facebook just to keep track of my uh, children's activities. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I view Twitter almost entirely through a, uh, uh, a veil provided by a company called Nuzzle. Do you use Nuzzle? No, I just use Twitter directly with my whopping 10,000 organically derived followers through a combination of uh, shit posting on security, cryptocurrency, and politics. So, th- n- what I like about Nuzzle is if you want to use Twitter to get news, um, what Nuzzle does is, sa- is say, we're going to give you the news that large number of people that you follow have tagged uh, or retweeted. And so you only see stories that two or three people that you chose to follow have tweeted, uh, which means that it's a much more carefully chosen group of stories uh, than uh, uh, stuff that got 500,000 retweets. Hmm. So uh, uh, this uh, program brought to you by Nuzzle Software. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe they'll call us up and say we want, they want to sponsor us. Uh, okay. Um, so, Nick, uh, the Dutch banks and the Dutch authorities are under attack, a DDoS attack mainly, but maybe not exclusively, uh, from sources that are widely characterized as Russian in geography, at least. Uh, uh, is this payback for the fact that the, uh, the Dutch intelligence service, really punching above its weight, apparently broke into uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the Russians' infrastructure for attacking the DNC and uh, recorded a bunch of it, uh, or is it just coincidence? We can't know. It could be Russia. It could just be random Russian 400-pound kids in their basements because it doesn't take much resources to launch these sort of attacks, or it could be coincidence. And we have no way of knowing. We do know, however, that, well, whatever sources the Dutch had, they don't have them anymore. So this is maybe yet another case where a leak boasting about an intelligence success becomes an intelligence failure. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. Uh, uh, and uh, I only hope it wasn't the U.S. that blew the uh, the Dutch uh, uh, cover, because it was a very cool uh, uh, um, uh, exploit. Uh, and uh, um, if if they lost it because of us, uh, we should be ashamed of ourselves. But I fear that might be the case. Okay, um, this week in sex toy insecurity, I cannot resist this because it happens all the time, but it's just amazing. Uh, 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 there are, uh, this is a real thing. Um, Bluetooth enabled vibrators where other people get to determine the 
pattern, you know, whether it turns on and what it does. Uh, uh, so you hook it to your phone uh, through Bluetooth, and then other people use the app to turn it on, use their voice to control what it does. So I'm trying to keep this uh, at least PG. Uh, and apparently the company Lovenzy kept all the data, you know, just because why not, and didn't ask for uh, uh, permission and is now being sued. Um, th- there's like a uh, – it's amazing how many of these companies there are considering uh, it never occurred to me to even – you know, this is a product I didn't even know I needed. <laughs> right. I'm just trying to figure out how this got through your nuzzle feed, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just don't know who I'm following, do you? <laughs> All right. Well, you know, if you're in this business, you really need to get people's permission and, you know, anybody who's using this probably um, would give you permission. I, uh, so just ask them for permission, and then you won't get sued. You won't p- end up paying millions of dollars in uh, <laughs> class action uh, uh, damages. Uh, and last uh, uh, topic uh, before we turn to Susan, uh, uh, trade and cybersecurity. It is, it's interesting that trade law suddenly is full of privacy and cybersecurity, maybe because trade law, it's just whatever is hot this, this month or this year. <laughs> year. Um, uh, but uh, both the EU and uh, um, NAFTA have, have taken some action, uh, Brian? Yeah, just it's one of the rare areas of agreement in the NAFTA negotiations uh, last round concluded last week was apparently uh, the three countries have agreed to include the NIST cyber framework principles within the NAFTA uh, text uh, if it's agreed to. Uh, and I think that's something that U.S. industry has been pushing for some time, and that is seen as a victory uh, uh, by the U.S. in these discussions. On the EU side, uh, the issue has been more, can the EU include anything on data privacy and cyber in its trade agreements? The European Commission last week announced, well, you can't do anything to make our rules more weak within the EU, but we're okay if the rules go the other way and, and the EU is doing things to strengthen data privacy and cybersecurity and the other countries' system. They must have been listening to my, my rant a, a month or two ago in which I said that they are violating the WTO <laughs> by uh, uh, not enforcing the, uh, their uh, uh, data protection laws in an even-handed way, and that does violate the WTO. They're going to say, oh, but it's human rights, <laughs> uh, and therefore uh, uh, I should just shut up. Uh, and that apparently, this is the uh, Stuart Baker should shut up uh, provision of the European Commission's uh, negotiating position. Uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, thanks to uh, Nick and to Brian. I want to talk now to Susan Landau. Uh, and um, uh, Susan... I forget where we first met, but I'm guessing it was the early 90s when I was at NSA and the first crypto wars were going on. Uh, um, you were probably in junior high at the time, I'm sure. but uh, um, Elementary school. I was actually, um, we met either when I was at UMass or when I was at Sun Microsystems um, in the mid-90s. Uh, but yes, it was during the first crypto wars. So uh, Susan and I both have a long history of uh, 
on the issue of encryption and its impact on society and how it ought to be regulated, if at all. Uh, and Susan, uh, unlike me, uh, I did write a book about this stuff uh, years ago uh, um, uh, that was about how governments were regulating encryption and uh, authentication. Um, it's now more or less out of print, uh, um, but uh, it's called The Limits of Trust. Uh, Susan's book is far more accessible, uh, and I think a good summary of what I described uh, earlier in the program as the conventional Silicon Valley wisdom about uh, um, a regulation of encryption on behalf of law enforcement, which is um, it's the spawn of Satan and should never occur. I, uh, Susan's view is a more nuanced presentation, although I think it comes out to the same thing. Um, a, and Susan is the bridge professor, I should say, uh, at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and the School of Engineering uh, uh, in the Department of Computer Science at Tufts University. And the book's title, again, is Listening in Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Welcome, Susan. Thanks very much, Stu. You know, I, I was originally trained as a mathematician, and we really care about the proof. So I agree that the theorem uh, is, yes, I come down on the conventional Silicon Valley wisdom um, that that we need widespread encryption and strong encryption without exceptional access and locked devices. But I think the proof matters a lot. You yeah. Know, and how you get there matters. I And, and I think you are... Um, you are fairer than most, and certainly you lack uh, some of the Silicon Valley arrogance that uh, these arguments oh, are you. usually I served up. I work hard at it. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me sum- try summarizing the uh, the beginnings of the book, which basically introduces the FBI debate uh, and uh, the fight with Apple, and then says, "How did we get here?" Uh, talks about how the internet basically ate everything, uh, uh, and that as a result of that, we all live. Uh, much more connected lives, and there's good and bad in that, and insecurity um, is a long-term bad problem that we are going to have to live with and that uh, uh, increasingly poses risks to whether we can live at all, um, and so we need to be very serious about security, uh, um, and then says, um, so let's evaluate the FBI's insistence that they're um, uh, losing access and need some legal uh, uh, authority requiring people who are providing encryption and uh, mostly encryption but maybe some other security devices uh, uh, that requires them to provide access. Uh, I think uh, it's become common to call it exceptional access, but uh, to provide a law enforcement access. Um, and you go through the arguments why that's a bad idea. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let me let me see if I can if I can summarize those and and uh, see if I've got them. I, you basically said, well, the FBI is asking for an ability to break the crypto, backdoor the crypto, uh, get access to the plain text. I uh, uh, and um, the you say there's three or four problems with that. Um, they are. One, it's hard to do forward secrecy, and I want to come back to that because that's an interesting concept. Uh, it's, it adds to the complexity of any security system. That's the second thing. Third is um, solutions picked today are problems 
for a very long time, uh, and you point to the fact that we're still we're still living with the consequences of export controls, which more or less ended in 2000, uh, and yet still hang on in code in ways that could cause uh, security problems. And the fourth is it's very hard to figure out who should get the keys uh, if you're going to keep keys to the uh, to the crypto. Is that fair? That's that's fair on the um, on the end-to-end encryption side. On the locked devices, there's a, a slightly different argument, which I know you're going to go to. I do want to talk about that. That's I I, I shorthand that as the Apple debate, uh, although it's not just Apple. Uh, um, uh, but let's let's talk about the reasons that you give for why the FBI proposal is bad for security on end-to-end. Uh, um, you make a lot of the idea that forward secrecy is important. And if I understand forward secrecy, it is basically saying you need to change your keys a lot because if you use the same key, um, it will uh, – to encrypt communications, even if it's really good crypto now, it could turn out to be bad crypto uh, in the future maybe when quantum uh, – factorization uh, becomes common, uh, and you don't want people to store vast quantities of your encrypted communications and then decrypt them later. Is that is that a, a fair? That's right. So we actually did that during the Second World War. No surprise, we, we uh, collected lots of Soviet communications. They were using a crypto system called One-Time Pad, in which you're supposed to use the key exactly once, throw it away. But because they had trouble distributing the key during the war, uh, they reused the keys. And during the project at the NSA called Venona, um, very smart cryptographers at the NSA were actually able to decrypt some of the communications. And that led to unmasking of some of the Cambridge Five, actually, as well as others. Uh, but this isn't true just for one-time pad. Um, the point is that if somebody is collecting your your communications, if each communication or each small set of communications has a different key, um, then it becomes much harder to decrypt if somehow they find a better way to get past the algorithm. Whereas um, if uh, you're using the same key, then if they find, figure out the key, or they, you're you're toast. So I, you know. Let me let me state my prejudice. This sounds like a cryptographer's fad, uh, uh, and and a cryptographer's fad that is driven by the very unfortunate dyna- dynamic that the cryptographers in the West are devoting most of their time to defeating NSA, uh, just like cryptographers uh, in uh, Russia and China, uh, and not focusing as much on cryptography that would uh, help ordinary people against ordinary attacks. The likelihood that somebody, some crook, is uh, storing all of my encrypted communications, even if they can get at them, uh, and uh, in, in the hopes that someday quantum computing will allow them to figure out what my credit card number is, even though in five years it'll be a different number or at least it'll have a different set of credentials, uh, strikes me as, you know, I guess you can worry about it, but uh, it's not central to securing the Internet as we know it, is it? Right. So I completely agree with you. A, a crook trying to store, uh, you know, your numerous communications as you buy different things with your credit card number, 
I don't think that's a use case. Let me go back to the beginning of your comment. I think pre the Snowden um, disclosures, I with a couple of exceptions, I don't think very many of the cryptographers in the West were thinking about the NSA as an opponent. In fact, many of them were shocked and said, I, had to, I have to rewrite uh, who my threats are because I never thought the NSA was part of them. Uh, oh, but to get hogwash, to, hogwash. I have, you know, I, it, ever since the 70s, there's been the academic cryptographers have, unless they worked for NSA, they uh, define themselves in opposition to NSA. NSA policies as opposed to NSA cryptography. I, I, I really disagree there. I mean, you can find some of the flaming ones who will go on and say, and I have to protect against NSA, but, and, and we can degree, agree offline who those might be. But no, I, I do, do not see that among the cryptography community until a few years ago. Let's go to the issue of who actually might collect communications and, um, and then try to, uh, unmask them if you're using the same key. And I want to use the example I actually used in class a little while ago, which was in the 1970s, uh, the Russians were listening in uh, to communications between farmers and farm cooperatives and so on in the Department of Agriculture. And they figured out we had a bumper crop at low prices at the same time they had a drought before we figured out that they were going to buy our bumper crop at low prices. And within a year, our our flower prices jumped by, I think, uh, four times, three times. Uh, we need secure communications at all levels of society with all the information we're exchanging. And forward secrecy is important for that. I'm not talking about the criminals. I'm talking about the nation states listening in to all sorts of communications. Well, you've got you to be, you gotta be think pretty highly of yourself to believe that the Russians are trying to steal your communications. And frankly, uh, nobody cares now. Nobody would um, store or decrypt the communications that would tell them whether we were going to have a bumper wheat crop in 1972. It's over. It's gone. It's the, you know, uh, the, the, the use case here is remote. And if somebody said, well, you won't be protected against that attack, um, if the FBI gets its way, I think most people would say, yeah, so what? Um, so, all right. Um, let's talk about complexity. That's the other argument. That uh, it's the second argument that you made, which is um, it, if you have to add in um, a uh, uh, a mechanism to decrypt communications, uh, inevitably you will make your uh, security system more complicated. Um, and com- complexity is the enemy of security, and I agree with you completely on that. Uh, um, uh, so anything that adds complexity is bad for security, and therefore we shouldn't do this for – we shouldn't let the FBI demand that. Is that, is that the, the argument? I would put it in – as you say, I do a more nuanced approach um, – it's you're weighing two, in some sense, unknowables. How much is this hurting the FBI? And if it had other techniques and other capabilities, could it surmount lots of it the way NSA has done over the last uh, two and a half decades or two decades? Or, um, or do we make the rest of society less secure in order to simplify law enforcement investigations? Um, that's the real issue. Now, in the context of uh, complexity, one of the points I make, and it's a piece of the whole issue on complexity, but one of the points I make is that you do away with something we call authenticated encryption. So in the race to make c- 
communications more secure, one of the things we learned is if you use the same key to authenticate the user, so I know the communication is coming from Stu Baker and not somebody purporting to be Stu, um, and at the same time, I use that key to make the communication confidential, I've taken two operations, put them into one. And that's something we've adopted because two operations are simpler than one. Do you think so? If you want to do... Can I I stop you there? Because that just sounds wrong. I, and I, I, I hesitate to say that because uh, you're, you're closer to the implementations than I am. But for years, people in your position were telling the government, you have to distinguish between authentication uh, uh, keys, which don't need to be escrowed and which ought to be treated uh, differently, and encryption keys. And it's, um, it's, it's, computationally infeasible to encrypt everything you send with a uh, uh, a Diffie-Hellman public key. So what you want to do is uh, reduce the amount of use of that. So you might authenticate yourself, uh, pass on some other key, and then use that key to encrypt. It doesn't sound to me as though um, the... Uh, the encryption and security com- community have said, oh, no, we just want to always use one key. It, it, it seems like you're putting a lot of your eggs in one basket, and it, not only do you no, lose... No, Stu. Yep, okay. No, I mean, what's going on is Moore's Law, and what was true 20 years ago is no longer true in, in terms of our ability to encrypt. In fact, I remember being at Sun in in the early 2000s when it was difficult to do um, secure web communications because it took too long. Right. Nobody notices that now because of Moore's Law and the speed up in computation. Plus, plus, they're, the plus, they're running on, when, plus they're running all those uh, I, uh, auctions on my, my personal data before I get to see the, uh, uh, the space. So uh, the time it spends well, to encrypt it. Let's not go into privacy. <laughs> we'll spend two hours and we won't get back to my book. All, but, all yeah. right. but the point is that Moore's Law changes the discussion from where it was two decades ago. So I, also, I, I okay, but look, we, we all we all survived a, a couple of decades ago. Um, it, it is there. There's some convenience and some new risks in combining your authentication and your uh, uh, confidentiality keys. Uh, uh, and and so I'm not sure how much value you get and really how much complexity you add if you say we don't really want your uh, authentication keys mixed with your uh, confidentiality keys because we don't want to be in the business of pretending to be you. Well, um, what we know is that mathematical algorithms are very occasionally found to be incorrect. Protocols are more frequently found to be incorrect by a large factor and implementations are found to be incorrect by an exponentially larger factor than that. And what I'm talking about here in authenticated encryption is bringing down the number of protocols and therefore also the number of implementations and increasing security, uh, which is the direction we have tried to go to over the last 15 years, not as successfully as as, as we have all hoped, but that's the direction we have been moving towards. Okay, so, uh, so this let's... This would, would undo that. Yeah, so it, this, this... In addition, I mean, there are yep. two parts to it, Stu. The first part is you do away with authenticated encryption. The second part is you've added complexity by putting in a backdoor, front door, exceptional access, golden key, however uh, law enforcement wants to call it this month. You've added complexity to the system, and there 
isn't a security person on the planet who will tell you otherwise than adding complexity inevitably decreases security. I agree with you on that. It's just that the, the security people on the planet have lost every argument over that with the people who provide the software we use every day. Uh, uh, and the... They, they want to win this argument against the FBI, but they can't win it against the people who are sticking in stupid features in every package of software we get. Because once they run out of basic features that we like, they start adding in features that allow them to monetize or to appeal to a particular small demographic that they think might like a new feature. And they're constantly adding features, which adds to complexity, which creates security problems, and yet uh, the security people don't win that fight. Why should they win the fight when, when we're talking about trying to prevent crime? Because you're talking about fundamental tools. You make the fundamental tools less secure, and you've undermined everything. Um, so it's talking not about changes to a snowblower, but changes to hammers, nails, and screwdrivers, um, and, and that's what cryptography is. All right. I, moving on to the next uh, topic, long-term problem. I, I, you make the great point that uh, uh, for a, a while in history, maybe two, three years, uh, 40-bit keys were the uh, – uh, that was the key length that if you wanted to export everywhere in the world, uh, you had to hold your crypto keys to 40 bits, which uh, uh, a modern computer could probably exhaust in, uh, you know, 10 minutes or so. Uh, I, and so they're not the world's most secure. They're better than nothing for sure. The, you know, I, if, if I got a 40-bit a, a encrypted uh, – uh, product, I couldn't uh, uh, decrypt it quickly, but people who make it their business certainly could. Uh, and now that that 40-bit limit is available still as the ultimate, oh, God, is that all you got, uh, fallback be in handshakes be uh, between uh, computers trying to set up uh, secure communications. And there are hacks that allow people, uh, that essentially tell the um, server, this is all I got. All I got is a 40-bit key. Would you use that, please? Uh, and so we are still faced with some security problems arising from a policy that has it's at least 20 years uh, out of favor. That's right. I mean, what it is is that in communication systems, whether it's web browsers or telephones, we work to be backwards compatible. So your newest smartphone rings your great-grandmother's old black Bakelite phone on her, uh, you know, hallway table. Um, the browser that uh, my uncle installed in 2001 still connects to Google, even though it doesn't show the dancing pigs or whatever. Google doesn't do dancing pigs, but you get the point. Yep. Um, we just believe in backwards compatibility. And the problem with it is exactly the, arc the issue that happened, which is there are ways to convince the browser to work backwards to a thing that is insecure because we put it in. It was not actually two, three years. I believe it was from 92 till the change in export controls in 2000, so eight years. But it tells it, work backwards to this thing you have to have because we're backwards compatible. And that's, that creates a very serious long-term problem. If we, may, if we discover we've made a mistake, we're going to live with it for a very long time. So I, maybe. You know, look, I, I, I feel about all these these problems, which are different from the last, is that they are, you know, kind of secondary and tertiary engineering problems. That is to say, 
you might say, all things considered, yes, I'd rather have simple, uh, simple than complex. I'd like to be able to do forward secrecy in a particular way. Uh, uh, I would like not to have to worry about how to undo um, insecurities that have been introduced in the past that no longer are relevant. Uh, but those are all problems that we solve or problems similar to problems that are solved every day of the week, and particularly the complexity issue where um, features have to be added every six months and uh, security be damned, uh, and the security guys just work around it. Uh, so this, this strikes me as... Not very successfully, as we know, and well, that's the whole point. We either allow our systems to be built with two hands behind our back, or we say law enforcement has to catch up to the technology in the same way that NSA did in the late 1990s. Uh, as you know, NSA was bedeviled by velocity, volume, uh, variety of communications, and it was said that the agency was going deaf. And now we know that the product is better than ever. Um, we know from the Snowden uh, disclosures just how good pieces of that product are. Um, NSA lost the clipper battle, but ended up being able to do its job really well. FBI didn't modernize in the same way. And we should be focusing on what FBI and state and local, because state and local are even in more trouble. We should be focusing on what tools they need, what kind of funding they need, what process needs to change, because that's where the problem really lies. We've moved. We're in a digital revolution, and only part of our government has moved that way. So and I, the other investigative part has not. I, 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 I take your point, and I was going to talk about that later, but let's, let's jump into it now. Um, a, the benefits of encryption uh, go to consumers, I assume. Uh, the, that's who uh, the, these products are made for. Uh, a, and the downside... Consumers uh, and government people. Yeah, uh, well, they, they, when, they, when, uh, when governments consume these products, they get the benefit of it. So all of the benefit ultimately is caught up in the price of the product. Uh, uh, the sellers are uh, selling products that people want more and they can charge more for them. Um, and the downside of encryption falls entirely on law enforcement and people who are victims of crime. So let me let me propose in, in Jonathan Swift's uh, terms a modest proposal. Uh, wait, Suppose, wait, wait. Uh, I would not say that the downside of encryption falls on the victims because one of the things encryption does is it reduces, it has the potential to reduce the number of victims. It, it yeah, well, it yes, it, 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 it maybe it shifts the victims around a little. There are certain crimes that are harder to pull off uh, thanks to encryption and other crimes that are easier to pull off if you have guaranteed uh, uh, communication security. So there are certainly going to be crimes, and many of them are going to involve uh, particularly uh, intense conspiracies where a lot of data has to be exchanged in order to carry out an attack that is uh, highly coordinated, uh, and those could be quite devastating. So those fall on society in general and on the victims in particular uh, and on law enforcement, which has to... Uh, uh, which doesn't have the resources to deal with it. Um, so what if we just said, hey, 
Thanks, Susan. Um, uh, with that analysis, what we ought to do is put a $2 billion tax total on the provision of encryption uh, to the world. They, that way, we can get the resources to uh, law enforcement that they can use to carry out the, uh, the hacks, um, and we will uh, capture uh, the social externalities imposed by Silicon Valley on the rest of us by their enthusiasm for security. So uh, that's fine as long as we also include a tax on law enforcement for the crimes that they no longer have to deal with because of security. So, in fact, if you go back to the Apple locked phone, I don't think. I, you know, we, we, Apple, wait, wait, wait. We don't. We don't. We don't generally tax governments. Uh, uh, but but uh, governments now have fewer cases to investigate as a result of, for example, Apple uh, put making its phones more secure. So the reason. So, so are you saying that, they they actually have more resources? Sources and scrum, they don't need anymore? No, I'm saying, uh, Stu, you're twisting things. <laughs> I'm saying that you're, you're ignoring the ways that the Silicon Valley companies have actually helped decrease certain types of crime by increasing the security of communications and of devices. And the particular example I want to mention is that back in the late 2000s, uh, Chinese criminals had found ways to pull data off of uh, stolen and lost iPhones, and they were selling this data, and more importantly, they were selling their ha- the hack um, to other criminals outside China so that other criminals could use the data from phones to commit other crimes. That's why Apple secured the phones. First first securing email, and then later securing 95% of the data on the phones. But, but, but wait, the wait, kind wait, of thing Susan, that Silicon Valley is doing to increase security. So, Susan, so when we talk let about me, the $2 billion dollar tax, we've got to put it in context. Yeah, but, Susan, the whole point of your book is uh, the, the Internet ate everything, and, oh, my God, we're really, really insecure. Terrible things are going to happen. I, that's inconsistent with saying, oh, well, it's the best of all possible worlds. There's, Silicon Valley has eliminated crime. Sure, they have made certain crimes harder to carry out, but at the cost of exposing us to other kinds of crimes that uh, law enforcement has to uh, solve and that encryption makes it harder for them to solve. And maybe Silicon Valley, which is not exactly hurting for funds, ought to just pony up for whatever it costs to to carry out the uh, alternative uh, investigative techniques such as hacking their their own stuff. Interesting hypothesis. So I guess we actually are going to go after the auto manufacturers um, and the oil and gas industry to, or the oil industry to now take care of, of funding Medicare and all the cancer cases. I don't think we actually do that. Oh, well, yeah, I, I'm sorry. It's a way to run government. I'm sorry, we do do that. What we, what we have imposed on those guys is a regulatory tax. They have a whole set of rec- regulatory requirements which dramatically raise their costs more than taxes do uh, and uh, uh, that are designed to protect uh, health. You're saying, oh, don't regulate, don't regulate. I say, okay, fine, just Pay up. No, no, no. I'm not saying uh, – no, Stu. I'm saying that we're talking about a security – a set of security equities here. Um, and the set of security equities, the FBI and state and local, are arguing very strongly that they're having a lot of trouble investigating. And that's absolutely true. I heard it six years ago, seven years ago when I testified to House Energy and Commerce in 2011. There was no locked devices. There was no end-to-end encryption to speak of. 
and the state and locals were saying, but there are all these different phones. We don't know how to open the different phones. Um, now I hear from, from FBI, but the communications metadata comes in all these different formats. It's hard to manage those. Those are easily solved problems. We're talking about the issue of whether we make phones and communications less secure, uh, which creates a long-term security problem, or whether we make investigations for the, for the value of simplifying law enforcement investigations, or whether we try to intro- improve security on the devices, on communications, and then help law enforcement to, to handle this, the same way that NSA and, and, and all I'm, all I'm, all, investigative techniques. All I'm asking is who, you know, helping them means giving them resources. Where should those resources come from? Should they just come from everybody or should they come from the people who are making a buck off of providing security that can't be broken? Uh, I, it seems to me, given a choice, uh, it's Silicon Valley who ought to pay. But let me let me turn to the phone uh, a security issue because that, I think, is the last thing we ought to cover. Um, all of this is in the context of Apple and the FBI, and you've got a, a good set of um, uh, a, a good brief on behalf of Apple in here. Uh, uh, but I really do want to focus on this question of why Apple, which after all does have a back door into everybody's iPhone, uh, shouldn't use that. It does. Yeah. What back door does it have? They, they can say to your iPhone. Here, run this code, and they can put anything they want into that code, and your phone will run it. So you're saying the fact that they can do secure updates means that they can also get data off your phone, and that's the way you want to go. Well, as, as, as my daughter would have said, no duh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's sort of obvious. They, they have a backdoor. Yeah, it ain't obvious to a technologist. Let me tell you why it ain't obvious <laughs> okay. to a technologist. First of all, the updates happen rarely. They don't. But, happen but that doesn't. That's, that's 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 like like saying, uh, you know, I I I'm I, I'm still a virgin because uh, intercourse happens rarely. I it, no, Stu, it is nothing like that, um, because the fact is, when you change a process from happening every few months to multiple times a day, you change the process in integral ways. You know that from your time at the NSA, and you increase insecurity. But there's a bigger issue going on, and the bigger issue is that an exceptional access key is really different from an update key. An update key in the case of Apple, Android is different, but an update key in the case of Apple, um, you first have to reverse engineer the Apple system because it's closed source. So you reverse engineer it. You put in something and it stops working immediately as soon as the next update comes in and it stops working for the same reason that the Greek wiretapping case happened or that we uncovered the Greek wiretapping case which is the people who did the change don't aren't able to 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 fix the new operating system but with an exceptional access key Somebody images your phone, maybe when you're going through security at an airport somewhere else, maybe when you're in a meeting with NDA, and they get their exceptional access key for your phone, and then they get the data off your phone. It's much easier to use. Well, uh, no, I'm sorry, but it, 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 law enforcement uh, wants it at. It is not secure. It so, cannot be made secure. So, for, for, for starters, um, 
we have decided and Apple has decided that despite the complexity introduced by having a, a separate key and the insecurity uh, created by having a key that actually allows uh, the company to tell a phone to run arbitrary code, that they're going to do it because they think uh, on balance, all things considered, all social values uh, uh, taken into account, including uh, the risk of new uh, uh, vulnerabilities being discovered, that they'd rather have all that complexity and all that vulnerability than uh, lock it down. So they they decided we're going to keep this update key. And then they decided we're not going to use this update key to help government. And your argument is, well, um, if they used it to help government, they'd have to use it more often, which is uh, an argument, but it's not exactly a killer argument. Uh, and I think you, you say, and that key could be compromised or the methods could be compromised. And if somebody actually stole your phone and had all of that stuff and could send the updates to the phone, they could get data off it. You know, I, I got to say, uh, in a world of insecurity, uh, the, the, in, the insecure world you very persuasively lay out early in the book, um, the risk of having my phone stolen and all of the security broken um, does not strike me as adding greatly to the security problems that I face today, none of which involve having my phone stolen. So, Stu, you're munching together different things. Yes, of course. As I pointed out, <laughs> the, the um, exceptional access key is a much more valuable key in many ways than the signing key. It's much more usable immediately, and that's problematic, seriously problematic. Well, you're assuming, um, aren't you assuming a, 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 a particular design there? Suppose they just did, did what the FBI said uh, in the FBI in, uh, versus Apple case. They said, no, you use your exact same key, write this product, all it will do is, uh, is defeat one particular so provision. We're now going to ask every company to completely redo their product, spend weeks of engineering systems because the FBI and state and local law enforcement haven't figured out how to do investigations in the digital age. Yeah, they haven't been able to get access to the data. They've been talking about since 1992. I mean, you know, you know, I know you know that the FBI was worried starting in 1992, which is what, 26 years ago, um, about the dangers of, of, of encryption, and they, they claimed at that time that it was possible by 94, everything, all communications would be encrypted. During that time, they haven't chosen to, to move to a, more, uh, a vastly more technological uh, workforce. They've chosen not to take money from the federal government when it's been available for that kind of work in CNCI back in the early 2000s. Um, in the mid 2000s, they didn't. They chose to take very little money there, um, and what they say instead is make it easy. Yeah, that, well, that, easy that is that's what they're asking. Insecurity. Well, but wait a minute. Do you know any responsible company making secure products that doesn't have an update capability? Uh, if you're responsible, you have an update capability. There you go. So, but, uh, so if, um, if, if, but, if, but, if, but if, an update capability, using it to do this um, means a great risk of the, the capability 
to wiretap other phones. Well, that, uh, yeah, maybe, that, but uh, you know, this 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 was a this was actually using the update to to get into a particular phone, and the update could only yes, have gone but, to that particular phone. But the code phone. is now written and now available. Yeah, and it's in the and, control of the company, just like its damn update key is. We, if you don't trust uh, yeah, Apple to keep the update key, yeah, but but Stu. It's like you, uh, me telling you how to change 702 in some arcane little way and saying it'll all work. I know the lawyers can figure it out. You're telling me that engineering using the update key is fine. But no, engineering using the update key is not fine because that piece of code is now available to open other phones. And there will be insider attacks. There will be attacks, um, and that code will be used for targets of interest. If if, if we cannot, which if, are right if, now if, if really Apple... good for second factor authentication, a really valuable use, including by the federal government, will become much less good for that. Okay. And just like the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act weakened communications security, this will do the same thing. All right. So I I I. I, I... I must say that uh, we're already trusting these companies. Uh, when you say uh, there's an insider threat or this this will get out, you're basically saying that the people we're trusting with their with our update keys can't keep control of data that they have. But I I I, I, I we're already five minutes over what we promised to uh, uh, to end on. Uh, a, so I will. Um, give you a chance either to talk about um, events and speeches that you're going to be doing in the future uh, that uh, our listeners might want to uh, uh, participate in, uh, or give a closing summation on uh, uh, the arguments you make in the book. You've already got an entire book, and I just had a half an hour to try to rebut it. So I would argue for uh, uh, telling people about future events, but you, t- you choose. Okay. Well, maybe I'll try and do a little of both. So I'm speaking in the internet at the International Spy Museum. They have a series of talks on encryption and spying. Um, I will be speaking on February 28th. Uh, and more than that, I can't tell you because I don't have all the details, but International Spy Museum in D.C. And then I was speaking at the Center for Democracy and, and Technology on the 1st of March uh, around noon. Um, and you're welcome to come to both events, either event. I think probably both is overkill. Uh, I'm speaking in Tulsa and Phoenix, uh, but the Phoenix one is for the U.S. Attorneys General, and it's more about other issues than encryption. Um, Tulsa is a book talk at the University of Tulsa on, um, I believe, March 7th. And let me end with my last paragraph in the book. The government's role is to provide security, national security and law enforcement, and not to prevent individuals from maintaining their own security. In a world surrounded by networked smart devices and increasingly capable adversaries, the government's responsibility is to protect us, enable us, to secure ourselves. Thank you. All right, Susan. Well, it's always a pleasure to uh, uh, talk these issues out. Uh, we uh, disagree vehemently, but uh, it's never been personal. Well, you were extremely complimentary about my first book, so I'm hoping that sometime <laughs> you'll be about this one too. But, but yes, it's we, a we fine book. Lot. It's a, it's a fine book. I, if, if I were, if somebody said, "Where are are all the Silicon Valley arguments?" on this issue pulled together in a single place. This is the place. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great resource for somebody who's uh, uh, looking into that side of the argument. Uh, and uh, uh, I would I'm say delighted. it's a great resource for somebody who wants to have a, a clear laying out of the issues, but 
there we disagree. Okay. Well, uh, why should we why should we end on uh, a note other than the one on which we began? Uh, uh, Susan Lando, <laughs> uh, uh, listening in cybersecurity in an insecure age. Uh, uh, thank you, Susan, uh, uh, and thanks to uh, Brian Egan, Nick Weaver. This has been episode 201 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to suggest additional guests uh, by sending a note to um, uh, Cyber Law Podcast at steptoe.com, and we'll send you, if they appear on the program, a Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, coming up, we've got Glenn Gerstel, uh, NSA's General Counsel, Rob Strayer, who's uh, in charge of cyber issues and cyber diplomacy at the State Department, among other guests. Um, so it's going to be a good uh, spring. Um, we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 